Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Philip Boyd is an educator, school district administrator, and nonprofit leader. He spent 10 years practicing law in commercial litigation, labor and employment law, and as a St. Louis County prosecutor. Philip's leadership lessons stem from his time in the U.S. Marines and U.S. Navy. Tonight, we're discussing those lessons over a glass of Booker's straight Kentucky bourbon while listening to Love Supreme. This is straight talk you won't hear anywhere else. I'm Galen Bingham, and this is Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Cheers. Boy, that's good. All right, we are back again with another conversation about whiskey jazz and leadership this is like you know another heavy hitting intellectual we we all have friends that we can talk to about sports and then we have friends that we can talk to about political issues and then we've got probably a different set of friends that we could talk about other topical issues. But if you really want to get like intellectual and talk about some philosophy, there's probably another group of friends that you go to to have that kind of conversation. Well, luckily for me, this guy that we're about to listen to is the one guy I go for any of those conversations. So uh, with that, I want to welcome into the room, Mr. Philip Boyd. Philip, welcome, man. Come on in. Hey, now. My brother, my good brother. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, man, we're we going to get started because I, um, you know, we share just a little bit about your background, but I want to give the audience the full scope of everything that you do. And uh, how is it that I describe you as a fully actualized Renaissance man? <laughs> You've done a little bit of everything. So I want you to get into your background. But before we get into that, I got one question I seem to always ask at the beginning uh, mm-hmm. of these conversations. What you drinking? So tonight I am partaking in some Booker's. It's this small batch whiskey. I think it's divine. Unpretentious. Hits you just right. It's something that you can sip on for a while. 
it's just really enjoyable. Um, it's just absolutely, it's, it's enjoyable. And I wish though, I, I wish I had a good story about like you have stories. Like that's one of the things <laughs> I love about when we get a chance to sit down and you explain your kind of connection to, you know, a particular label and barrel. And I'm just like, I'm just not that sophisticated yet. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to grow up a little bit here. Oh my gosh. Well, you play with the right juice though, man. I'll tell you that bookers, as a matter of fact, since I know that that's like one of your, one of your new favorites, I had to break out a bottle of bookers tonight. I'm going to go ahead and pour me a little bit, just a little bit. And I'm going to sit back and just listen to you. Just share a little bit about your background as I sip on this and we can get into the conversation. All right. So I think it's, it's really interesting. I feel like I've had just different opportunities to experience a plethora of things in this world. And I think a lot of that starts because I am the father of a serviceman. My father was a black airman, served 24 years in the Air Force. As a result, he was all over the world. He uh, was stationed in Spain when I was born. And my mother, who was from Thailand, and he met when he was stationed in Thailand, they moved there. And during the last three and a half years of his service in the, in the Air Force, that's where he was stationed and that's where I was born. So, you know, that was just like a kind of a formative thing. I, I think I've been exposed to when people start talking about diversity, you don't get much more diverse than being in a so-called mixed race marriage in a foreign country in Spain and, you know, having had babysitters that spoke Spanish and, you know, growing up with just a different initial understanding. You know, we left Spain when I was a little over three. But, you know, those kinds of things, they imprint on you. But I'm going to skip ahead to, I think, some other things. Like when I was uh, around 19, I ended up enlisting in the Marine Corps. Again, it was one of those things that became like just a formative thing for me because I had a chance to. That was the first time I was on a plane since I was three years old was when I went to the Marine. <laughs> like that whole time, like my father, growing up, my father said, we, we would say, you know, like, dad, like, let's travel here, travel there. And he would always say, I already done my traveling. I'm not going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> stay put. I'm gonna stay you right stay here. Put. We didn't take vacations. You know, the only time we left town was when we were going to funerals. Like we go up to Chicago. We had family up in Chicago. That that was the time. So I had this very, very, really interesting kind of relationship with the idea of travel because I, you know, we'd be like, oh, we gotta go out of town. I'm like, oh, well, who died? Right? Because <laughs> that, that was wow. my question. I like, what are we gonna see? What are we gonna experience? It's like, oh, who died? Because that's what I knew. So going to the Marines was, was really uh, just freeing for me in a lot of ways and, you know, ended up being part of Desert Storm. So I ended up traveling to Saudi Arabia and Kuwait. And, you know, initially I went when I was undergrad, thought I was going to be in education, ended up switching my career path and wanting to go into law, became an attorney, practiced law for 10 years, started getting involved in a couple of things in the community and uh, decided that I really wanted to see if I could make an impact in education. So I transitioned Going on nine years now into education, have been privileged enough to work at the district level, be, being an assistant superintendent in, in three different districts, and uh, currently serve as a board member of Ford through Ferguson. I serve on the board of Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Missouri. I also have the privilege of serving on the Leadership Council for Ready by 21, which is a regional cradle to career 
initiative backed by the United Way uh, and several other regional organizations that really just want to try to create a better pipeline to take care of children and create both the you know mental health supports for them, the educational supports for them, and the social supports. Uh, so that you know people can basically develop into uh, into healthy individuals that are ready to like really impact you know our region, our country. So that's the hope. Wow. Basically, you didn't know who you wanted to be when you grew up. So you got like the highest level of concentration in every possible thing you could. (laughs) Because, you know, you didn't just join the military. You joined the Marines, right? It's like you you guys get shot at first. (laughs) You You know, so so what was interesting was when I joined the Marines, it was actually after I had been in college for a semester. And I just felt that I needed to be able to experience something where I would be pushed and challenged in ways that would force me mm-hmm. into a deeper understanding of who I am. I always had this appreciation for the Marines and the lore of the Marines. And, um, you know, it was it was interesting because, funny enough, and this really, it actually, one of my older sisters, the, the middle sister, she was really upset about this, but you remember the movie Full Metal Jacket, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know, like the... The first basically 20 minutes of the film is is that the boot camp sequence, right? And so me being who I was at the time now, hey, okay, I'm 18, 19, so <laughs> give me some grace, right? I'm just like, ah, oh, that looks kind of awesome. I can do that. You know, and my sister was like, you realize this is crazy, right? <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, but I can do it. So it was it was a challenge. And, you know, I, I think that it was so important for me formatively, but it wasn't always like a, a fun thing or a good thing for me. But I would say that the biggest market left on me was a belief that I can adapt, improvise and overcome. I can learn. I can figure it out. And that a lot of times that when you're working with people, it, it was one of the, the first times that you really that one really sees what, okay, so what is good leadership and what is bad leadership? Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, I had some fantastic leaders and I had some leaders that you were just like, okay, I need to run away from you as far as possible. Give you a funny story. Remember one time we were on a training exercise. So a bunch of us enlisted guys, you know, we're, we're helping to put up the main control tent for the command element. And we're also putting up the, the webbing that is supposed to, you know, like if you're, if you're looking at things from from the sky, like whether you're, you know, some type of surveillance plane or, or helicopter, you know, we would set up the the, the netting so that it, we would blend in, into the um, the desert more. Mm. And so there is this one captain that came by and, um, got, you know, we had been working hard all day. He comes by, he said, Marines, come on, let me show you. Let me show you what let me show you what's going on. And, and he says, this, this is the way you need to move the netting. And he picks up the pole for the netting. And he's just like, you got to really think about where the setting's supposed to be, right? And he puts it back in the same place. And, you know, looks at us and says, that's how you set the, set the, set the netting. <laughs> and we all look at each other. We go, thank you, sir. Right? And it was just like, you know, it's just other aspects of that training exercise. You know, this particular officer showed just how much he wasn't a leader. The things that would come out of his, his mouth the degrading ways he would speak to enlisted Marines. 
you know, and then you had other officers that were, you know, you just would bust through a mountain for because they respected you. You know, they really saw that their mission was to make sure that you had what you need needed to do the job. They they understood that, you know, you had a particular expertise that was mission critical, right? And so therefore, you needed to get things done. You needed to have your support. And you knew that, you know, you knew how to take orders. You knew how to get things done. It was always a, such a, a breath of fresh air when you had officers that got it, right? Because, you know, it wasn't like you did, anyone disrespected them. It's like people understood that, like, yeah, the officers take care of you. So you made sure you took care of your officer. Whatever wow, they needed, wow. you made sure it happened. That's an amazing story because very often, you know, we, we think of leadership as being on a continuum. And on one end, you have this command and control, which is usually attributed to military. And on the other end, you've got this very participative building allegiance, just the total opposite of command and control. But in a situation like military, where I would have expected you to say, we followed that guy because we were, we were scared to death of him. You, you're saying just the opposite. You're saying the, the leader that showed up with that, uh, I, I, you know, I have all the answers. You guys are just plebes. <laughs> that's not the guy you guys respected. So tell me more about that. Cause that's, that's a little different than what people typically think of with military. And so, and I want to be clear that it wasn't the same situation that you get, like I would say in the private sector or even in the, in the education sector where there's this level of flattened leadership. It wasn't quite like that. So I, I don't want to give the wrong impression. But to me, it, it was more about the best leaders were always the one, and I'm talking specifically military, the best leaders were always the one that understood that they could ask enlisted people about like, okay, what are you seeing? What do you think we need? And you know, it wasn't like all of a sudden we said, oh, I'm calling the shots. But it was just like, it was an empowering feeling to be able to say, oh, like I can actually provide you information and provide you some guidance. But at the end of the day, it was, especially because it's the military, you understood that like, I'm going to follow the orders of my superior officer or my superior senior enlisted, right? And so you saw that, well, as a Marine, you just got it done, right? So even when you had not very great leaders, you got it done anyway because you understood that things were mission critical. You're going to get it done, right? It's a different experience when you're able to work with someone that understands that people can still be treated with respect even when you have a very clear line of leadership. And it it does, it makes you want to do more. You know, it makes you want to say that there's nothing impossible. Whereas like you're going to, even in the military, we found ways to do the bare minimum if we had a, a leader that we felt was really not up to par and really didn't respect us. Right, right. You know, one, one of the things I've talked about uh, quite a bit is that command and control type leadership is expedient, but at best you only get what you ask for. If, if you're lucky, you might get all of what you ask for, but if you can step into a, a more empowering leadership, then you, you open yourself up to getting what I call pleasant surprises because people will give you what you asked for and then they'll give you a few things that you didn't know that you needed. 
So uh, I'm wondering, I've talked with a number of people. Actually, I've got a good friend who was a, a Marine as well. And he was coming back into corporate America. And we were talking about interview questions. And so I was peppering him with interview questions that he might face. And I asked him about situation where he's had to demonstrate leadership. And uh, I was prepared to coach him around you know, business type situation. He said, okay, well, we were getting ready to take this hill. And if we didn't do it right, half of my uh, team were, was gonna die. I'm like, wow, that really changes the whole tone <laughs> of the significance of leadership when you've got lives at stake and you've got mission critical situations weighing in the balance. How did you transition from military to non-military situations, how do you see leadership transitioning for you? Well, I think for me, I, and, and again, I mean, you know, I was enlisted during my entire experience and, and most of my experience was as a reservist, but I would say that there's just an understanding that from the military side of things, you realize you have to get some things done because if you miss certain steps, if you miss following through, it can it can impact lives, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's a different type of pressure that comes with that. And you know you have to make sure that things happen because you don't want to die. You don't want anyone, you know, in your platoon to die. So you've got to make sure things happen. And it's interesting because I know for me, it's been an evolution of understanding of leadership, mm -hmm. right? So I'll give you an interesting story, which is actually my experience in the Navy, because I was also I also served as enlisted in the Navy. So it's a very different environment. Right. And, and this was after I had been in the Marines and in, in our barracks at our A school. Right. Which is where you go right after boot camp before you get into the fleet. You have the most senior enlisted people, which I ended up being one of them. You You end up, you know, having different duty requirements at various times. And so it was my turn to be one of the ones that was basically having to make sure things were happening in the barracks and everything like that. And so, you know, people were like really just <laughs> disgruntled about a lot of things going on. And they felt that there had been other people that had been just really kind of abusive of because they didn't understand what it meant to be a leader. It was always about, I'm in this position, do what I say, or, you know, I'm going to go to the you know, senior chief and get this done, that done. And so like a simple thing, you know, it was time for us to make sure that we were cleaning the barracks, cleaning the bathrooms and everything like that. And so I started out, I said, look, I said, here's the deal. There's nothing I'm going to ask you to do that I'm not willing to do. And so I was in there in the bathrooms and wherever it was else, right alongside all the people that I had to command. Right. And, you know, it wasn't like I was getting any kind of attaboys or anything like that. But let me tell you something. That was probably one of the fastest times we had experienced, you know, as a barracks. And we're talking about in this barracks, you know, this was like basically two different buildings put together. So we're talking about like 80 to 100 different people. It was because they realized that like I was serious. It's like, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not going to be willing to do. And so people were willing just to get it done because they knew I respected them and they knew that it wasn't like I was, which had happened in in the recent past, where you're telling people to do things and you basically are heading out someplace, right? Yeah. It was like, I was visible, I was there, people had questions, you know, and it was just like, hey, treat people with respect, 
ask people what you know what needs to be done and then follow through if people need something follow through on what they need and and that ends up creating just a much better environment <laughs> and relationship and culture right and that was probably one of the first times i really thought about what it meant to form community with people mm-hmm. when you're a leader right because i think it is it is important you need to form community right and i think just as human beings we we end up always defaulting in terms of like i think some of our biological cognitive processing we think about you know how is it that i fit into this group and if there is a leader can i trust that leader and is that leader taking care of me right and i think that's important it's, it's just like you know you you cannot just be a leader by position you have to be a leader in terms of what you represent the model that you set and there's so much that can be done when when people can trust you and when you actually call on people to you know really lend themselves to whatever's needed wow that, i mean that's great i mean you're a, you're absolutely right i i can't add anything to <laughs> what you just shared I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the fifth discipline uh, because you listed that as one of your one of your favorite books talk a little bit about of all the books that you've read why why would you list that one as being one of your favorites so i am like a fanboy peter sangi right i believe he's he's a he's a engineering professor out of mit he might be retired now and i actually got a chance to meet him probably 7 years ago at this point at a at a systems thinking conference that was going on in indianapolis and i was fanboying and the reason <laughs> is this the fifth discipline helped me think differently about organizations and both large and small like even in in terms of like larger regional organizations governmental organizations right and thinking about one the idea which it was so crazy to think about this that i had never thought about systems as also being unintentional and it was one of those formative things where you go yeah like intuitively all of a sudden you go like this is why certain things happen and keep on happening yeah. is yeah. because there there are things and processes in place that perpetuate outcomes they perpetuate relationships um they perpetuate connections right and and over and over again it's just like that's a system and it was it was interesting to think about how my understanding had always been about oh systems are only those things that people put together right those things that people are intentionally thinking about and someone wrote on a whiteboard one day and where i was working at that point it was in normandy school district someone wrote our systems are perfectly designed for the outcomes we continually experience and it was just like oh my like yes and so there is no mystery what is really difficult though is to ask the right questions then right in order to say i want to change the system in order to change systems you have to understand okay so what are the different types of mechanisms and gears in the system right mm-hmm. and that's that can be tough because all of a sudden you're messing with people's cosmology at times because you're saying hey we need to change what's what's happening 
And we need to figure out like, how did A get to B to C and on? And sometimes some of that means that you're challenging what has been long-term processes and relationships and things that people do. And it is like in education, especially you see a lot of like, well, we do that because that's what we always do. That's what we've always done. Right. And so you say, but let's, let's get out of that. And it's all of a sudden people may aren't even consciously understanding that their reaction to saying we should change that is challenging who they are fundamentally. And they didn't even understand that fundamentally they had kind of uh, adopted this ideal of things which made life comfortable for them, right? Not necessarily easy because people can still struggle and work hard in systems, but the emotional tumult that can happen can definitely be lessened when people are just like, well, this is who we are. This is what we do. It might not even make the outcome productive. Yes. But it makes the participants, it makes the actors comfortable. Yes, yes, exactly. Exactly. And that is why many times you will see difficulty in changing systems because people have become comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. You see this a lot in education because, you know, when you say, oh, OK, so we really want our kids to be able to experience a different learning journey, to have different outcomes. And in order to do that, we need to change X, Y, and Z process that they're going through. People are like, well, wait a minute now. That's kind of crazy talk because I've been doing this for 15, 20, 25 years and we're fine, but we're not. Not if we really have a vision that's different, right? And so the fifth discipline, what was interesting was that it helped me think differently, not only about systems and outcomes, but also about what it meant to think about individuals within the system, right? So one of the things that they talk about in the fifth discipline is is how imperative that you have levels of opportunity for people to experience personal mastery, Mm. right? How awesome is that? Yeah. It's beautiful in a sense, because what you're saying is that the more that you can help people attain personal mastery within an organization, the better it is for the organization, Yeah. right? And so what do you need to do to do that? And part of it is is also getting other people within the organization to understand the systemic processes that are taking place mm-hmm. in order to change things, right? And it requires that you are able to be comfortable with asking hard questions. Let me take a, a just a small step back because oftentimes when people think of systems, I, I know I tend to think of machines. I tend to think of, process. And yet people might be a part of that system, but they are just a means to an end in my designing of a system. And if I connect this back to what you were saying about your time in the Marines, you function better with leaders who you felt cared about you and had your best interests at heart, saw you as more than just a means to an end. And I think I even remember you saying those who didn't show that you did as little as you had to in order to complete the task, but not not anything more. Uh, that's kind of messing up my whole narrative about people in a system just being a, a cog or just being a means to an end. How do you do that? How, how do you how do you still empower people to pursue mastery 
uh, and still maintain this system, this process that that often think uh, often people think of as, as needing to control. Mm, I think that's such a I mean, it's such an important question because I think being in a leadership position, you two things. One, I think you have to realize that <laughs> as a leader, and I, I mean that from the sense of responsibility, right? Not just position, but responsibility, right? So I'm a leader because I have a responsibility to lead. I have responsibility to help those in my department create the best outcomes for the people that we serve, right? So we have a mission to make sure that we are providing good service to people, helping people get answers. And then within the department, you know, some of the things that I do to make people feel empowered or or have an opportunity. I, I can't make people feel really anything because their reaction could be all kinds of ways, right? Not to say that like when you like say anything to people and be mean, that that's not cool. But I, I think that what I have done that has been effective is for one simple thing is that when it comes to like meeting agendas, like my expectation is that everybody in the department adds to the agenda. And if I don't necessarily put something on there, I'm thinking that for our department meetings, you know, there's all other kinds of things that people can put on there. But also, since I came into this role, and I've, I've been like this in basically every role, when there's an issue that comes up and someone asks me, can you advise what I should do? And I would say, well, what do you think? And it's like, I understand that at the end of the day, because of this particular issue, I may, I'm going to be the one that has to maybe make the final decision on anything like that. But, you know, as, as I've said to, to some of my team more than once, given your experience, uh, given your time in our organization, you have a better understanding than I do. So I'm going to need to be able to rely on, you know, your knowledge and understanding and wisdom about this. And to me, there's never a time when I don't feel like I can make a very rational decision once I have gotten the wisdom, received the wisdom from the people in my, on my team. I actually don't want to make decisions until I've had some level of counsel. Yeah. I function better that way when I'm able to rely on them. And so now there's more of an expectation that you know if they come to me, it's going to be like, Here's the situation. I'm thinking this. Like, that's what I want to hear. If you're a professional and, and you need to be able to understand that, like, I trust you. I may have to, like, say, well, you know, unfortunately, because of X, Y, and Z, we're going to go in another direction. But you need to understand that, like, I am really thinking that I have to rely on you. And, I, and that's fine with me. I mean, I think leaders should be comfortable relying on their team. Otherwise, why have a team? This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.